Okay, so second class, second book discussion, Vimalakirti Sutra. Uh, just to, to kind of recap what we did uh, last time. So we talk about Vimalakirti, who was uh, the foremost non ordained uh, disciples, uh, disciple of the Buddha, and uh, very deeply realized. Uh, and uh, he was somebody who was not hindered by the Dharma, but knew how to use it well, how to come and go with it, how to not uh, define or be defined by the Dharma. Right? So we talk about his uh, skillful means or liberative technique, the way he is using it, the way he used it to teach others, and also reconciliation of dichotomies. So really, the, the two main points of the, of the sutra is, are those, reconciliation dichotomy, and all dichotomies, and uh, skillful means, upaya. Right, so we talked, uh, we gave some background, we talked about Vimalakirti as a person, uh, he, was a he was a rich businessman, a very successful businessman, and uh, so now we begin from, uh, we're actually almost at uh, chapter 3, we are ending chapter 2. So he decided to appear as Sikh, right, for the purpose of teaching. 35. What? Page? 35. Thank you. So, in this way, the rich man Vimalakirti employed immeasurable numbers of expedient means in order to bring benefit to others. Using this expedient means, he made it appear that his body has fallen prey to illness. Because of his illness, the king of the country, the great, the great ministers, rich men, lay believers and brahmans, as well as the princes and lesser officials, numbering countless thousands, all went to see him to inquire about his illness. He then imparted to them the teaching, saying, Good people, no person of enlightened wisdom could depend on a thing like this body. This body is like a cluster of foam, nothing you can grasp or handle. This body is like a bubble that cannot continue for long. This body is like a flame born of longing and desire. This body is like the plantain that has no firmness in its trunk. This body is like a phantom, the product of error and confusion. This body is like a dream, compounded of false and empty visions. This body is like a shadow, appearing through karma, through karma causes, or karmic causes. This body is like an echo, tied to causes and conditions. This body is like a drifting cloud, changing and vanishing in an instant. This body is like lightning, barely lasting from moment to moment. This body is like earth that has no subjective being. This body is like fire, the void of ego. This body is like the wind that has no set lifespan. This body is like water, the void of individuality. This body has no reality but makes these four elements its logic, earth, water, air, fire. Body is void, removed from self and self's possession. Without understanding, these bodies without understanding, like plants or trees, tiles or pebbles, these bodies without positive action, 
blown about by the wind. His body is impure, cramped with defilement and evil. His body is empty and unreal. Though for a time you may bathe and cleanse, clothe and feed it, in the end it must be it must crumble and fade. His body is a plaque ridden, beset by hundred and one ills and anxieties. This body is like the abandoned well of the hillside, old age pressing it on. This body has no fixity, but it is destined for certain death. This body is like poisonous snake, vengeful bandits, or an empty village, a mere coming together of components, realms, and sense fields. He says, good people, if you wish to gain the Buddha body, and do away with the ills that afflict all living beings, then you must set your minds on attaining Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi, perfect, unexcelled realization. In this manner, the rich man, Bhimalakirti, used the occasion to preach the Dharma to those who came to inquire about his illness. As a result, number, numberless thousands of persons were all moved to set their minds on attaining Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi. So, for a few minutes, assume you read that, not just heard that. Where are we at with this? Any thoughts? Any anything you want to share about that? He's saying a lot, but he's basically saying that he's basically echoing what we already know and what we try very hard to uh, disregard. Right. Yes, he's talking about impermanence. He's talking about everything fleeting. Nothing exists for moment by moment. He's talking about that there's nothing there. There's nothing I can call me. How do we feel about that? Go ahead. I'm just saying that it reminds me of the five remembrances from Buddha. Yes. Right? Which is how nature could grow old. There is no escape of the gold in nature. Right? We have illness, there is no escape from illness. And you have to accept that. Right. right. But he's also saying something else, right? That he's saying that there's a way. When, when we recognize that, it's an opening. To recognize, to not fight, to not go against. Right? That by itself is an opening. The recognition of what is or in a way the recognition of what is not, right? So what we think is, and it really is not, right, is an opening. Right? There's a lot there, but, but a lot of it has to do with what we try to avoid, and that's the point, right? What we try to say, yes, but, right? And that's where, it be, that's where the mess begins, after the but. I get it, but what about this, what about that, what about all the other stuff that I can see, I can feel, I can experience? What about that? What does it mean, it's ephemeral, what does it mean that this one here is fleeting? Emotionally, what does it mean for us? You don't have to say anything. <laughs> Don't say I didn't give you a chance. 
Yes. For me. Yes. I'm feeling like it's what you just said. That the hardest part is to see <clears throat> that there is a way to recognize and not fight it. Mm -hmm. So the hard part is to not fight it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I have to learn. That's, isn't that our work? Yeah. You know, in a nutshell, right? In a nutshell, we could say that, you know, the, the, this path is learning how to die. It's what? Learning how to die well. Oh, yes. I mean, this is really, you know, it's not that we are, it's not the dark path. It's just that we are, by learning how to die, we can learn how to live. Is that learning or is it acceptance? Acceptance. It begins with acceptance, but then to learn how. How day by day, moment by moment, you know, so it's, it's not a one-time fix. This is the point, right? It's learning. And learning is actually learning for the rest of our lives. We're learning. You know, sometimes I think the word acceptance can be misleading. Because if I accept it, I'm good to go. Well, it's acceptance in a sense that you don't know when, you don't know how, but you have to take advantage of yeah. this moment. So then, and one second, then, then the question is, how does this acceptance manifest in our lives? How does it, or does it manifest in my life, or was it just a moment in time I accepted, and then I go back to old habits and patterns? It's very deep. I mean, our, our patterns are very deep, you know, we're not saying, well, here, just read this sutra and you're good to go, or accept it. And even that is kind of like, you know, what we're we accepting. But the moment you accept it, you can go about your moment-by-moment moment living without having to worry. Yeah, theoretically, theoretically you're right. <laughs> it's true. But then just look, okay, look at, look at us, okay, look at practitioners, right? I mean, we work with it, right? We face it, we work with it, we... We have a long way to go. Hopefully. <laughs> go ahead. The thing I got out of that was that I noticed that he emphasized a lot of things that are material, uh, a lot of things that are physical, that are that you know fall within the realm of of uh, not being permanent. But what I got out of that mostly was um, that the self also that that we create for ourselves is also fleeting. He doesn't mention it directly, but it's under, it's under the surface. Well, what he's saying is that that's what we create ourselves from. Yeah. Th those are the elements. It, so, so what he's doing, he's taking all the elements that we create ourselves out of, and he's saying those elements are unsubstantiated. Mm -hmm. So, therefore, your creation is unsubstantiated. Right. That's why you are unsubstantiated. Yeah, that's what I got m most out of it, was that. Right. Is going to the root, is going to what we, the building blocks in a way, right? The building blocks of what we call me. He's going there and he's saying there's, this is, there's nothing there. Yeah. And then, yeah, so what am I doing with it? You know, so, so, so in a way, if this is empty of uh, separate existence, right, of fixedness, then so is that. Yeah. Because that is built on those building blocks. I think in terms of the emotions of it, it reminds me of the movie we 
watched last night, um, that Junior and I watched last night called Collateral Beauty. Anybody watch that? Mm -hmm. And it reminds me uh, of Will Smith. Will Smith? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And um, it reminds me of this because he's stuck, and the death of a child is, is devastating, right? But um, he, it reminds me of, he's stuck in his, he's, he's not accepting his, his daughter's passing, and he's stuck in her life and, and her death. He's stuck in that loop. And his spouse has, was able, through death, to see the resulting beauty that comes even after something so um, devastating happened. She was able to see the beauty around her. And I think that's attaining Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi is like, um, you accept that everything is impermanent, but then you are able to see the, the beauty around you and the love around you, even though it's falling apart, you know. Like flowers fall even though we love them, right? Yeah, and, and it's not negating, I think it's very important to point, it's not negating pain, it's not negating suffering, it's not negating the fact that we do experience pain and difficulties and challenges. So, so you know, the recognition, well, we may recognize, well, there's no self. But then again, and this is the question, well, what about the pain? We can't just do away with it by saying, well, it's all like foam, fleeting or whatever, you know, this is, that's where it can become theoretical. This is where everything we do has to come down to our practice, which is experiential. It's not. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's really important to to acknowledge that. You know, accepting it is is like the gateway. It's like the opening, right? And once you accept that something is fleeting and is impermanent, it, you I think it, it really behooves us to appreciate that thing because we may not have it very long. So even the pain, the good times, the bad times, these are all things that are impermanent and that are, are fleeting. Mm -hmm. So I think appreciation is a, is, is a very powerful way to, to engage in, in those things. Yeah, that's one way to, yeah. It, it opens up the gate for appreciation, for yeah, deep gratitude. Great. Yeah, um, just to piggyback off of that, it reminded me of the part in, um, Zen Mind Beginner's Mind, where he talks about mind weeds, mm -hmm. where even the planting of weeds, yeah. the thing that you're very much trying to remove from your garden, uh, the planting of it can help nourish the plants that you are trying yeah. to, to grow. Um, and I always thought that was interesting, and it's not a, um, it, yeah, like you said, it doesn't negate the pain. The pain is no, actually, uh, he said we should appreciate the challenges that we have in our lives because they give us you know, a way to deepen our practice. So we should be grateful, Suzuki said, for the challenges that we have, mm -hmm. for the difficulties that we have, mm -hmm. and the pain. And then um, something you were, you were talking about at the beginning of this um, reminded me of something you said in the first Keisha you gave at gave the session about being careful of when we let go to not immediately give in to grabbing onto mm -hmm. something else, mm -hmm. to, to give in to that natural reflex to just want to grab onto something else. So, Right. As we let go of, of this and begin this acceptance, it's important to not then turn just Right, so to, to examine, just to, to clarify, to examine the, the grasping hand and not what the hand is grasping. Mm -hmm. 
right? The, the, to examine the tendency of the hand to clench. And it doesn't matter what it clenches, yeah. what it holds on to, what about that? Where does this come from? Mm -hmm. The reflex. And it, it is actually a reflex. So, anyway, uh, we move on. So, at that time, the rich man, Bimakiti, thought to himself, I'm lying here in bed, sick. Why does the world only one, the Buddha, in his great compassion, fail to show some concern for me? Right? So what's going on with this guy? He's supposed to know it all and be kind. And so, and the Buddha actually felt that. And was, you know, he, he actually sensed that thought of Vimalakirti. And um, he wanted to send somebody to, to go visit him. And that's where the mess begins. But, uh, and this is where this chapter begins. But he first, I'm going to go through that uh, just for a few minutes. He first goes through the, the arhats. And we talked about uh, arhats at the beginning of the, the first class, that arhat is, is somebody who um, perfects realization and uh, for the sake of himself or herself. Right? And then that becomes the goal. Right? That becomes the end result and, and there's no expanding it. Obviously, we are, uh, it permeates, so our state of mind, state of being does affect everybody and everything around us. But our heart is somebody who has devoted his life or her life to realization, to the perfection of realization. Okay, so he first goes through the ten foremost disciples, our hearts, and, and each one of them has a special power. So Shariputra is the foremost in wisdom. Madhugal Dagal Yayana knows, is known for having supernatural powers. Mahakashyapa known for being great at ascetic practices. Subhuti known for a deep understanding of emptiness. And Purna was the best uh, at preaching the Dharma. Katyayana foremost is in, in his understanding of the Buddha's discourses and the founder of the Abhidharma school. Anuruddha possessed the ability to know others by perception. Pali was a master of the Vinaya school. Rahula, the Buddha's son, was known for being highly disciplined and meticulous. And Ananda, the Buddha's cousin, was known for having great memory, and he was the one responsible for memorizing the Buddha's public talks. So, the Buddha was aware of uh, the Vimalakirti's thought about the fact that nobody is, that he's not sending somebody to go visit him. And he said to, uh, first to Shariputra, I'm not going to go through all of them, I'm going to go to some, so I will skip. Uh, you must go visit Vimalakirti to inquire about his illness. So Shariputra replied to the Buddha in these words, World honored one, I am not competent to visit him and inquire about his illness. Why? Because I recall one occasion in the past when I was sitting in quiet meditation under a tree in the forest. At that time, Vimalakirti approached me and said, Ah, Shariputra, you should not assume that this sort of sitting is true quiet sitting. Quiet sitting means that in this threefold world you manifest neither body nor will. This is quiet sitting not rising out of your samadhi of complete cessation, and yet showing yourself in the ceremonies of daily life, 
This is quiet sitting. I love that. Ceremonies of daily life. Not abandoning the principles of the way and yet showing yourself in the activities of common mortal. This is quiet sitting. And I want to bring up a, a line from a different translation, uh, Robert Thurman's translation of this sutra. It says, you should absorb yourself in contemplation in such a way that you can manifest the nature of an ordinary person without abandoning the nature of your cultivated spiritual nature. Let me say it again. You should absorb yourself in contemplation in such a way that you can manifest the nature of an ordinary person without abandoning the nature of your cultivated spiritual nature. So I just want to look at that for a few minutes. We don't have to take too much time, but this is really important. So it's one of the more important aspects of this sutra. What is he saying? Yeah. It's about maintaining kind of, well, not two separate selves, but in the sense of much of what we talked about with the session of uh, how do we cult, you know, continue to cultivate our spirit while at the same time not withdrawing from ordinary life. And that one doesn't take very much over the other, but it's how do we keep them existing simultaneously? How do we not create duality? Right? How do we not create, we are masters of creating dualities. Right? How do we not do that? It's a challenge. I think we have to be clear about that. It is a challenge. Because our tendency is to actually do the opposite of that. Right? Whether we we feel that we are practitioners or we are non-practitioners, and it's a dangerous thing because if we see the practice this way, then we may have aversions to it or we may love it. Actually, it doesn't matter, right? Whether we, we run away from practice, run run towards the practice, in such a way, in this way, we create something from it or of it, and then we reject something else, and we create duality. Yeah. You said at the very beginning of this chapter, isn't it strange that the Lord is thinking this? Why? Selfish? Um, that he's thinking, I'm lying here sick and Buddha's not doing anything for me. Um, since Bill McCurdy is this person who seems to yeah. have this wisdom and power, etc., etc. I mean, is this a game? I mean, it almost sounds like. Um, He's, I mean, one extreme might be testing the Buddha, and another extreme might be, I wonder what my friend the Buddha's doing today. I wonder if he's even thinking about that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to kind of bust his chops a little bit. Buddha, what are you doing? <laughs> True. It seems like that. But then don't forget, this is liberative technique. This is upaya. The whole thing is set up as upaya. This whole upaya sutra. In relation to Relation, or no, relation to us. Well, right. So, right. so, so then, then a game with Buddha for our benefit? The whole, thing, the whole thing is set up. Look at it like a play, right? You go to see a play, right? The whole thing is set up as liberative technique, as upaya, as skillful means, so we can see something. By the person writing it. Yeah, but yeah. Not by the analogy. No, no, that's, yeah, but so Bill Mercury thinks, okay, well, the Buddha is not sending somebody, but he's, in a way, it's, he's creating something, so then the Buddha will send somebody, so then we can learn from that, and then one by one, what he's going through is really how we get trapped. 
Right. And so that's then, another way to get trapped. So then there seems to be some sort of, not conspiracy, but some sort of agreement between the Lahiri and Buddha about how this is going to progress? Yes, and you know what, this, this is the agreement, by the way, of... So when the Buddha was holding the flower, right, holding the flower, right, Mahakashyapa smiled, that's the same conundrum. That's where it begins. This is where the mess begins. Because it's, it's okay, now, I'm holding this, he's smiling, right? How do we keep that going? So it's almost like in the book of Job, when God and the devil are talking to each other and decide to do something in relationship to Job, it's sort of the background which then launches the story. Um, between um, forces which have some understanding of how the world works and to help us understand how the world works. So isn't this a, just a pretext? Basically, he could have set like the feast, which is inviting maybe Buddha or everybody, and nobody wants to come, and you have the interaction created. Yeah, look, I mean... So okay. the focus here seems to be sickness. Yes. Which well, I think is yes, Right, very important. Because, yes, but then we're going to get into, into that, right? What, what kind of sickness is that? Right, so then, yeah, but that's coming. Next chapter. So, right now, we're still looking at... Uh, at it, it, it's the stage of, okay, I'm sick here, the Buddha is not really, you know, doesn't care about me, right? But it's a play. And it's a play, okay. in a way, to revolve the Dharma, right? We, we talk about revolving the Dharma. How do we revolve the Dharma? When you look at koans, for example, right? I mean, there are many ways. You know, why did he do this? Why did he do that? But all this was done, in a way, for us. So it's playing both senses of that world. Yes. So then we can arouse that uh, bodhicitta, in a way, or, or uh, nurture the bodhicitta. The mind that wants to awaken, right? Or the desire to awaken. This, this kind of, uh, that play, you know, if you, if, you know, for lack of a better word, feeds that, right? It, it nurtures the bodhicitta in us. So, yeah, let's keep going, see what goes. <laughs> okay. Uh, anything else? No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm with Raison. I'm just, <clears throat> you know, pushing it along, right? So... What I'm, what I'm trying to understand is that it seems like this is a play, right? A play with characters in them, right? Historical, figurative, metaphor, whatever, right? And there's a writer, right, that is, that is expounding this, trying to elucidate or express this idea. Much the like, teachings, right. He's expressing the teachings. Right. Much like in the Western tradition, and Raison, jump in here and correct me if I'm wrong, Plato might be expounding, you know, a view from characters in his dialogue, right? Similar to that. And, and I think that there's that whole level of context that is imbued in here. It's, it's not just this dialogue between female Kirti and the Buddha. There are other references to what the Arhats were during that day and how they are how this text is trying to differentiate yeah. that point of view from the from this emerging Mahayana tradition, which they are trying to establish at this point. Yes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so there's that layer that I think is in it as well. 
Right, it's true. There is a you know, there's undertone of you know what's better, what not so good, and right. all that. Of course, that that is interlaced with the sutra. Right. But what's important for uh, for us when we study any text, actually, to look at what's relevant mm-hmm. and to look at what is being raised, right. rather than to create another division using that. Right. And that's you know so so what are the what are the relevant details right. in this and what's going on. What is he really pointing at, right? So, and, and the focus should shift in a way from maybe the mind gets caught up in this detail or that detail, but that's fine, you know, put it aside for a while, file it away, and keep looking. That would be the, the advice. Just, okay, let's see where it goes, right? So, I just want to keep reading before it goes on to Mark Ashiapa. He says, your mind not fixed in, on internal things and yet not engaged with externals. Either. This is quiet sitting, so not to be caught up in anything, right? To qu- it's quiet sitting. So he's talking about Zazen, right? This is our Zazen, which is really not hindered by anything, so it's not defined by anything. We bring definitions to Zazen, right? You know, it's like I'm doing something special, I'm doing something good. But what he's saying, no, no, forget all that. Because that's creating divisions. Unmoved by theories, but practicing the 37 elements of the way, this is quite sitting, entering nirvana without having, without having put an end to earthy desires. And if you remember, uh, Bodhidharma talked about that too, right? You know, it's just, that's, it connects very well. This is why this sutra is so important in the Zen tradition. Because when you look at what, you know, at, uh, what Bodhidharma was teaching, the way, you know, we studied that uh, last year, and, and this, there's a lot of connection there, right? So, enter, entering nirvana without this shore is the other shore, right? And without, without rejecting anything, without putting an end to anything, which means there is suffering. Right? This is quiet sitting. If you can do this kind of sitting, you will merit the Buddha's seal of approval. Right? At that time, what only one, when I heard him speak this way, these words, I remained silent, for I had no way to reply to him. This is why I'm not. This, I'm not going to visit him. But, you know, I'm not up to snuff. You know, there's no way I can confront this guy. Right. So, anyway, then he goes on to Mahakashyapa. He says, you must go visit Bhimalakrita and inquire about his illness. Mahakashyapa replied, well, well, Donald one, I am not competent to visit this guy, right? Why? Because I recall how in the past I was begging for alms in poor village. And at that time, Bhimalakrita approached me and said, ah, Mahakashyapa, you have a mind marked by compassion and pity, but you do not know how to apply it to all, to all alike. Instead, you shun the rich and mighty and beg alms among the poor. Now, he was known for, and the idea behind that, he would go to beg among the, the, the poor people because he, want, he thought that by doing that, they're giving, he's giving them an opportunity to gain merits. Basically, he was saying, you know what, the rich men are good. They said, they, they don't need that kind of help. I'm going to go and, uh, to the heart of where poverty is and I'm going to help those people. You know, what he's telling him, you are differentiating. Right? And, and, and the point in that is not so much Makashyapa or Vimalakira, the point in that is how we do it. And, and this is, you know, again, talking about the uh, uh, Paya. 
right? Liberative technique, and those are the important points to look at. Rather than, you know, why, or why didn't the Buddha go himself? <laughs> I mean, it's another question, right? He's, you know, he's trying to send, but we could have gone to visit him, but that would not be, yeah, one page, and <laughs> that's it, the whole book. <laughs> yeah, they go, they look at each other, it's all done, right? So they understand each other very well. Okay. Right. But it's for us. <laughs> right. So, he said in Mahakashyapa, you have a mind marked by compassion pity, you do not know how to apply it to everybody. Mahakashyapa, you must abide by the principle of equanimity, and in that spirit go about begging for food. Or in our case, you know, with that spirit of equanimity, go about our everyday life. You go to work, you know, ride the subway, take, you know, sit in traffic, hear the news. How do we apply equanimity when we encounter things we, we have opinions about? Isn't this a little bit avoid picking and choosing to some extent? Because he was choosing a certain thing versus something else. So just say, don't do that. Well, picking and choosing has to do with duality, right? I mean, we pick and choose from a mind of duality, from a mind that separates, right? And it cuts you know, duality. Time in our life, as we you know, we're aware or not. Yeah, to apply a mind of equanimity, moment by moment. And like anything else, it's a challenge and it's a practice, which we practice for the rest of our lives, actually. It's not, right? So equanimity being not being attached to food, I like when he says, because in the end there is no such thing as eating. <laughs> and then that spirit, one goes about begging for food. So not being attached to what we need to do. Right, and that, that goes back to what he said at the beginning, that this body is ephemeral, it's fleeting, it's like a bubble, it's like a foam, right? It goes back to that, right? So. Um, you must abide in the principle of equanimity and that spirit go about begging for food because in the end there is no such thing as eating. In that spirit one goes about begging for food because one wishes to destroy dependence on things characterized by a mere combination of elements. So a thing characterized by a mere combination of elements is the self. That's what it is. It, those are... The, what we call a self is characterized by elements that we have uh, collected or are collecting and put together and organize them in a way that creates something, someone. And he says we have to destroy dependence. And it's interesting, it's not destroy the, the, the mechanism as much to destroy dependence on it because the mechanism works. But it's to, to work with the hand that wants to grasp. Right. So in that spirit, one accepts these balls of food stuff because at the end there's no receiving, right? No giver, no gift, no receiver. In that spirit, one receives this food. When you enter a village, think of it as an empty village. The forms you see there should appear as they would be to a blind person. And you remember the different kinds of blindness, right? It's, it's, the diff it's not blindness is not one thing. We can be blind to, uh, we can be blind to differentiation and see all as one. We can also be blind to oneness and see all things as different. Those are not the same kind of blindness. 
right? So, and the sound you hear should be mere echoes. The aromas you inhale should be so much thin air. The flavors you taste should be undifferentiated. Accept all sensations in accordance with and the enlightenment of wisdom and understand that all phenomena are no more than phantom forms. They have no intrinsic nature, nor do they take any other nature. So Markashapa, if without casting aside the eight errors, you enter into the eight emancipations, if while possessing the marks of error, you can enter the correct Dharma, if with one meal, you can feed all beings offering alms to the Buddhas and the sages and worthy persons, then after that, you may eat your food. So, was it, let's just look at that for a few minutes. What is he saying there? What, what is one meal that feeds all beings? Isn't he talking about seeing oneness there? Understanding oneness? That if you feed yourself, you are feeding all beings? Yes, he's talking about actualizing oneness, right? Mm-hmm. So in the eating, right? right. So no, not separating, not differentiating, seeing... Okay, so, so when the elements that form the self are seen as empty, the self may be also seen as empty, right? Mm-hmm. As a result of that. Mm-hmm. And when that fades away, what's left? All things. All things. Oneness. All things as one. One as all things. While we eat. Mm-hmm. While we give, while we receive. And, and we, we, again, with all things, you know, like that, we have to bring it home. How do I feel about it? Am I practicing this? Is it theoretical? Meaning, is it a theory that I'm kind of looking whether I'm going to accept or deny or reject? Do I agree? Do I disagree with the theory? And that's, this is what we have to move forward from or move away from. It's not about agreeing. It's about living. Oh, he's, yes. He's still discriminating. Who is he? Um, Phil McCurdy, when he's um, giving the, this response to Mahakashyapa. Yes. Um, I mean, it's how to discriminate without discriminating. Because sometimes you beg and sometimes you eat and sometimes you And if you don't discriminate, you can go about doing your various activities, which I think it's the sense of him being a rich businessman. I mean, he can succeed in the world without discriminating. So he can do all of these various activities. Um, so it's that balancing between, yeah, oneness, but that doesn't mean that you know, as you go through your life, you're not going to be encountering all these different things. So it's not oneness in the sense that in your in the phenomena that you experience, it's not going to be a whole bunch of different things. You have to deal with those different things. Right. Because and one has many kinds. Security seems to be this example of that balancing between the two. Um, right. So he, what, what you're saying is that he's 
Okay, let's just let's just uh, that, put it that way. There's, he's not rejecting anything, right? So all these things are there. All phenomena does appear and disappear and for us, and they're different, right? One has many kinds. One has many kinds. Two have no duality. We we'll go back to that, right? So the third patriarch, same time. That's what he's saying. Actually, that's what he's doing. Yeah. The part that I find difficult though is that he does um, implicitly seem to favor one. Who's he? The Malkirtri, right? So he, he's trying to make this point that, you know, it's not one, it's not many. You have to keep, you have to constantly hold the two in that kind of paradoxical tension, right? You, gotta, you, you can't operate in one without the other, et cetera. But, but he does seem to ascribe some more basic, fundamental idea that things are all one, right? So, so things change. The body is ephemeral. It doesn't exist, right? He, that's his first point. And that's what he keeps coming back to, right? So it's not like it's just, I don't know. It's, it, it, I, what I struggle with sometimes is it's, it's not just one or and many, right? Because that's what he's trying to say. It's not just one and many. He's saying that underneath both of them, there is some kind of, you know, unity there, right? So in, in the way I see it, I, I don't know if other people agree, is, is that it, even though he's trying to hold those two things in tension, in, in tension he does seem at times to favor one over the other. He elevates one over the other, which is the perception of oneness. You know why? Why? Because we are great at separating. What we need is, if we needed to see the many, then that would be the, the cure. It's because, because of where we're at. Mm. Our problem is not that, you know, yes, you know, we understand. No, we actually are very versed in and masters of separating, of mm -hmm. chopping up. Mm -hmm. That's why this, is, this sheds light on what we're not seeing. We understand, you know, there are many of us here, we all look different, right. different age, different state of mind, state of being, physical, whatever, right? That we understand very well. Mm -hmm. And this is our problem because we understand five fingers, we don't understand hand. Right. So, so we have to go back to that each finger is one hand. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that, that's why. But, but either uh, way, either way, the light is being shed on the whole thing anyway. Right, right, right. Right, right? you know, whether you point it here or here or here right. or here. Right. It's always shedding light on the same thing. Right, right. So again, in terms of Upaya... He's, he's emphasizing that side of it. He's emphasizing what we need to hear. Right. Let's just put it this way. That's why we have to bring it home. Mm -hmm. I think implicitly, you know, the fact that, you know, Bhagmanakirti is made a rich person <coughs> with a lot of resources, is implicitly saying this guy knows how to also deal with the many, you know, and it's not surprising from that. He deals with a lot of things, and then he does well with that at the same time. So it's kind of more implicit. I agree with you that it's not so in your face, but you know, it's part of the description of this person, which I find funny that it was they put an effort on describing this person is a rich person, mm -hmm. you know, because I think it's it's an important you know portion of what the teaching is about. It's like it's not about what you have, or what you don't have, but people get attached to that. That's why. Because, I mean, it would be easier to, to think, oh, it's a poor person, you know, like, and so everybody will get attached to being poor and ascetic has, mm -hmm. has kind 
kind of a mean of being more pure. Yeah. You know, and uh, and I think it was it was an interesting decision making by the writer on how to describe. Yeah, but then when you read the description about about him, right, with the first second chapter, first chapter, I remember, I think second chapter, uh, that they talk about his life, how he led his life, right? You know, so what did he do with that richness? And what kind of life he led? And how did he go about, um, he was coming and going through everything and everybody, right? He was not discriminating in his life, right? So, yeah, anyway, uh, quickly. No, one thing that I feel through the whole book is basically the idea that, like you said, the guy sits under the tree and meditates, they say, don't do this, you have to go and intermingle with the life yes. and interact. And this comes all the time, I think, like, through the book. You know, go and just... Well, he didn't say don't do that. He said, he said, how do you, he asked him, how do you do that? He said, what you're doing is you're creating a division. And he's talking about what is correct sitting, which we always talk about. What is correct sitting? You know, I'm, we're not sitting to escape. Some of the things I talked about at Sashin, you know, we don't, we cannot call it a retreat, because it's not a retreat, because we are by nature we retreat all the time to our cocoon. It's the other way around. That's why it's important to hold to, to keep the word like Sashin, because it means one mind, not retreating from anything, but going directly to everything as one. And then he was saying, this is correct sitting. Sit like that. We're not just sit to include everything and everybody. Sit to eat a meal that feeds everybody. Can you sit like that? Or are you sitting like that? You know, and I think that, that's what's important. We have to see our sitting as a healing for the rest of the world. Rather than, you know, I'm going to just take care of this one here, yes. You're great. And not just sitting for yourself, but sitting for everybody. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sitting for the rest of the world. You give your sitting for the world to the world because... When you sit, the whole world sits. I remember we had to talk about that a long time ago. A long time ago. And you asked me, what well, are the people upstairs? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hey, that gets me here a lot. <laughs> On Sundays when you wake up and you're tired, <laughs> it's not just about me. Right, right. But which is actually another point you know, in terms of a Sangha. Uh, so, so each one of us supports all of us, mm -hmm. right? So we're actually doing it, you know, because by showing up, we support everybody by looking at our practice and making sure that we are precise and clear and do with the best we can with it. We are helping everybody. Right? So, okay, Makashiapa, if you can eat your food in this manner, then you will not be eating in vain the food that others give you. At that time, World Only One, when I heard him speak these words, I gained that I had never had, what I never had before. And I was inspired with profound aspects for all the bodhisattvas. And I thought to myself, if this householder possesses such eloquence and wisdom that he can speak like this, then who could listen to him without being moved to set his mind on attaining Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi? From that time, from that time on, I ceased to urge others to follow on the path of the voice hearer or the pratyek. Kabuddha, the lone Buddha. That is why I say I am not competent to go visit him. So, we move on. 
And the Buddha said to Purna, you must go visit Vimalakirti and ask about this. And Purna said to the world honored one, I am not competent to go visit him. Why? Because I recall once I was under a tree in the great forest, I was expounding the Dharma to some monks who had just began their study of the way. Thank you. At that time, you gotta love it how he shows up. <laughs> At the right time, the right place. Given everything else he has to do. Right? He always shows up, right? <laughs> Given everything else he has to do, right? Right. He's a busy guy, right. <laughs> but he always shows up, right? And, and he has a lot to say. He actually, what I love about it also, he messes with everybody. He has no issues. It's like, what are you doing? You're wasting your time. Right? <laughs> So at that time, Vimalakirti approached, approached me and said, Ah, Purna, you should first enter into meditation and observe a person's mind before expounding the Dharma to that person. One does not put rotten food in precious vessel. You must determine what thoughts are in the minds of these monks. Do not treat precious lapis lazuli as though it were mere glass. You seem unable to understand the basic capacities of living beings. You must not try to rouse their aspirations by preaching the doctrine of the lesser vehicle. Now watch out there, don't get trapped. <laughs> um, I, I think that, okay, the lesser vehicle and the larger vehicle, I think what's important in this is that we, we, we clarify, we have to clarify to ourselves that this is not, or we should not see it as uh, some uh, as, as words that ridicule or belittle anything. If anything, these should be uh, seen as words that show us what we don't appreciate in ourselves, rather than going to why and what happened. And there are a lot of traps that we can actually fall, a lot of landmines, right, or mines uh, that we can get trapped by. But but the important thing is how we practice. So, so in a way, what is the lesser way of practicing personally, or as a sangha? Right, which we have to dive deeply into because there are many ways we can uh, look at that, right, and then learn from that. So, do not inflict injury on those who are without wounds. Does sound like something familiar? from koans, from commentaries. No? Yes? Little. Gouging your wound in a healthy body? Mm -hmm. Remember? Mm -hmm. Yes? Gouging your wound in a healthy body. That's what we do. It is healthy to begin with. And, uh, and, if we don't, and if we don't understand it correctly or we don't practice correctly, we can do that. We can actually gouge wound in somebody, in our own understanding, right? So we can create more sickness or in somebody else's. If you want them to travel the great highway, do not show them a little bypass. Now what he's saying is that it's available. He's saying it's right there, it's available. Just don't get caught up in this. Do not try to feed the vast ocean into an ox Ox's hoof prints. Do not regard the light of the sun as if it were a firefly glimmer. Well, now, these monks long ago set their mind on the great vehicle, but later they forgot their original intentions. Why do you use the doctrines of the lesser vehicle to teach or guide them? As I see it, 
Well, okay, let's just start just for a moment. What is referred to by greater or lesser? Just so we're on the same page. Is it lesser about the Not self, but uh, personal practice to reach nirvana. Yeah, it's, it's saving correct way of seeing the one who is practicing. Mm -hmm. Right? Get rid of delusions. Uh, I mean, it's more an isolation versus greater vehicle to me. And also not end result. Mm -hmm. Right? So the end result is not, or not seeing emancipation or realization or enlightenment as an end result. It's not. Right? If we teach in this way, and, you know, I mean, look, we have to look around, right? I mean, there's all kinds of mindfulness practices that are by design, they're there so you can feel better, which is great, right? Feel better is a wonderful thing. Yeah, so but it's not an end result, mm -hmm. right? It's not, you know, pay this money, get that product, you're good to go. That could be seen as a lesser way of, not lesser because we don't have the great potential, but we are not tapping our great potential by practicing this way. And that's what he's, that's what he's saying. You know, tap your own great potential and share that with others. Show them and tell them that they have the same potential, the same capacity as you. And that's what, you know, and this is why Bodhisattva never rests in a way, right? This is okay, well, so what if you uh, have created or realized something that help, is helping you in your life? Yeah, so I'm not creating problems to others and this is the end. Right, but then what's the next step? Uh, somebody raise their hand here? Okay. Yeah? No? Okay. <laughs> you don't agree or you have nothing to say? <laughs> okay. Okay. Anyway, so he says, you know, why use doctrine of the lesser vehicle to teach or guide them? As I see it, the wisdom of the lesser vehicle is trite and shallow like the understanding of a blind person. It is incapable of discerning whether the capacities of living beings are keen or dull. And at that time, he entered, Vimakirt entered into deep samadhi, making it possible for these monks to become aware of their former existences in the past. Under 500 Buddhas, they had planted the roots of virtue and set their mind on attaining Anuttarasamyaksambodhi, it's the arising bodhicitta, right? That they, he actually nurtured their arising bodhicitta. And at that moment, they were suddenly able to regain their original spirit of resolve. With that, the monks bowed with their heads to Vimalakita's feet. Then he preached the Dharma for them, inspired, in, in, sorry, ensuring that they would never again regress in their striving for Anuttara Samyaksambo. Anything else about that? Comments? We're good? I think I have a question. Comment. Yeah. What's, what's the word that's been translated law? Is that Dharma? Or Dharma. It? it is Dharma. Yeah. Okay. The inviolable law, right? The law that uh, we cannot break even when we break. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think that it's translated, I think in Robert Thurman's book, it's translated as a Dharma, and uh, for some reason, Watson translates it as a law. But it's the same meaning. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
and I think I agree with you on that. That I think Dharma would be more suitable because you know because it's about what we can relate to this way. Law has right and wrong in it, yes and no, or I can do something against it or whatever. Yeah, yeah. The law of the universe, right? So the Buddha then said to Upali, you must go visit Bhimalakirti and ask about his illness. And but Upali replied to the Buddha, well, the only one, I'm not, same thing, right? All of them, kappa, right? Because I recall once I was in the past where the two monks had violated the rules of conduct. Violated the rules of conduct. We just worked on Jukai, right? And we, we agreed that we are, or at least that we are on the same page in regards to the fact that uh, if we think we're not going to uh, violate, we are violating, right? So we have to understand that that's what happens, and it doesn't mean that anything is actually stained or impure. Anyway, so... Thank you. Uh, so, the, uh, where was it? Because I recall once in the past, uh, when two monks had violated the rules of conduct and were feeling ashamed of themselves, Maybe this is the point to look at, right? Feeling ashamed of themselves, but did not dare to ask the Buddha what to do. So they came to me and said, Ah, Upali, we have violated the precepts and are utterly ashamed, but we do not dare to ask the Buddha what to do. Please free us from these doubts, from the doubts and remorse, and tell us how we can be excused from blame. And I explained to them how one goes about gaining pardon according to the Dharma. But at that time, Vimalakirti showed up and approached me saying, Aupali, do not make this, the offenses of these monks, do not make the offense these monks have committed even worse than it is. You should go about wiping out their doubts and remorse at once and not trouble their minds further. Regrets. Right? not trouble our minds further. I screwed up. So what? What are you doing about it now? I messed up. Okay. Great. Now you understand. You have some clarity. What do you do about it? The, again, and I'm saying it because this is, these are the points, these are the ways in which we have to uh, read this. Not go somewhere and not conceptualize it. Well, why did this? Why? Who cares? What does it mean now about my practice, about my life, about the way we are uh, operating together as a Sangha, about the way we conduct day-by-day -day, uh, activities, interactions? How do we deal with feeling like we messed up? Right? And then we do trouble our minds further. Right? We talk about right effort, wrong effort, that would create a lot of extra effort. It's enough. Let's focus on that. Don't add to it. Why do, why do I say this? Because their offenses by its nature, their offense by its nature does not exist either inside them or outside, sorry, or in between. As the Buddha had taught us, when the mind is defiled, all the living beings will be defiled. When the mind is pure, all the living beings will be pure. 
as the mind is, so will be the offense or defilement. The same is true of all things, for none escape the realm of suchness. It's a very interesting way to say that. that nothing escapes the, the realm of suchness. Even delusion exists within suchness, oneness, vastness. Big canopy, remember from the beginning, the huge canopy? Now, Pali, if one gains emancipation from delusion through an understanding of the nature of the mind, does any defilement remain? No, I replied. So when one gains emancipation from delusion through an understanding of the nature of the mind, what is the nature of the mind? What's the nature of the mind? <laughs> you happen to be right across, so... <laughs> uh, any relation to the Buddha mind, then? Is it just now? Nature you asking, mind. are you saying? Both. <laughs> <laughs> nature of mind is pure, without defilement. Without defilement, but without praise. Yet it includes everything, including the, the, the mess. Look, right there, right? Mm -hmm. That's the nature of the mind. Continuous, nothing is outside, nothing inside. Now just, because he's saying that all phenomena are born and passed into extinction, never enduring, like phenomena and lighting. So basically, it just, if something happens, just keep moving, move on. Isn't that the whole thing of all this? No, he's saying that nobody moves on. You're saying just move on. Who is moving on? I'm going to ask. Well, he's no, asking. No, in a sense that do not dwell. Do not dwell. But there is no dwelling, right? That's but even dwelling is not dwelling. And not to philosophize about it or to try to create ideas about it. Dwelling is not dwelling because there is no such thing. Because there is nothing that can stop. Nothing can stop. Nothing can... <coughs> Everything. Yeah. Yes, Everything. nothing exists unto itself. Isn't the nature of the mind impermanence like we were talking to you? And it's just that. Impermanence? Yeah. Unceasing, unceasing, right? Un, undying, unborn. Right? So impermanence is that. Constant flow. Continuum. There are many words to, to describe. But the point of all-encompassing is all right. In this case, all-encompassing means including delusion, including messing up. <coughs> so it's not. We have the notion that if I mess up, I step out of the path. I step out of the practice. I gotta regain. I gotta go back to the practice. But there's nothing to go back to because you cannot go get away from. Because even that includes, is included in this. And again, you know, the, the, the mind that separates, right? That's not, the mind, even the mind that separates exists within the mind that does not, that cannot.
Yamalakiti said, in the same way, when all living beings gain an understanding, no, I read that, so. Ah, Upali, deluded thoughts are defilement, where, where, where are no deluded thoughts, that is purity. Upside-down thinking is defilement. Where, where there are no upside-down thinking, that is purity. Belief in the self is defilement. Where there's no belief in the self, that is purity. All phenomena are born and pass into extinction. Never enduring, like phantoms, like lightning. They do not wait for one another or linger for an instant, right? They do not. So, let's just look at this for a moment, for one. Upside down thinking is defilement. What does that mean? It's not the first time you hear it, so go ahead. We're adding something. What? Like we want to grasp or reject, and we're adding something. We want to manipulate. And like we don't want to see reality as it is often. So yeah, upside down. I'm sick, I'm saying I'm not sick. Because uh, <laughs> I want to get better. And uh, it's kind of thinking ahead. Uh, it's, it's hard to really face the pain, for example, like to really, because the, the moment it arises, we're thinking about get rid of it and get better. It's mm -hmm. kind of in our nature. Mm -hmm. I'll get better soon, and it sounds very positive, but what about taking care at the moment? Because mm -hmm. you really want to kind of rush ahead and get rid of some. I think that's important also here because we're talking about illness. Yeah. So to recognize thusness, suchness, things as they are, right? To not recognize things as they are, upside down. To create something and to believe that what we create is true, is real, upside down. To let that go. But that creation, what he's saying is that when, when we don't do that, that is purity. Actually, what he's saying is purity is not something to attain. It's just, if you don't want to, if you don't want, to, if you don't want to experience suffering, stop creating it. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. That's the Buddha, right? If you don't want to experience suffering in the world, stop creating it. And he's saying the same thing. You want to experience purity, stop creating idea of impurity. That's true. The mind is creating it automatically, right? It's not that we are volitionally doing it. Both. <laughs> but right, right. Because we believe the mind that creates it, so then we go along with that and create more of the same. So how can we recognize that it is happening automatically and not follow it, not believe it? So we're going to move on. Otherwise, we'll be here for the rest of the day. Uh, Rahula. Hi. The Buddha then said to Rahula, you must go visit Vimalakirti. And Rahula said, I cannot do it. Because I recall once in the past that the sons of wealthy men of Vaishali came to the place where I was, bowed their heads in obeisance and questioned me. They said that you are the Buddha's son, right? But you cast aside your claim to the rank of a wheel-turning king and left the thousand life to become a monk. 
sorry, the household life to become a monk. What benefit does one acquire by living the household life? And in, in a way, this is uh, another way we create duality, right? With, you know, and back then, if you remember from the beginning, we talked about how there was this notion or this belief that to, to attain a realization, one must turn away from everyday life and must devote oneself completely to, uh, to the practice. So you either do this or that. And if you're not, if you're a householder, then all you can do is you know, give food to monks and then help them and then gain merits this way and then maybe later on be born and go become a monk. Be reborn and go become a monk. So this actually flips that upside down. So, by that time, Bhimalakirti approached me and said, Arahula, you should not speak of the benefit of and blessings gained by living the household life. Why? Because to do without benefits and without blessing is to live household life. So, to give up the idea of benefits, blessings, merits, to give up those ideas is to actually practice correctly, right? In the case of things that are conditioned in the nature, one may speak of them as having benefit and blessing. But one who lives the household life enters the realm of the unconditioned. And in that realm of unconditioned, there are no benefits and no blessings. There's more here, but I wanted to, again, a few minutes before we move on to my trail. Okay, why don't you uh, see where you're at, Baptist? Why don't you say a few words about that? About where is he at, or what is he pointing at, and how are we, how do we see the practice as non monastics? Right? We all have, you know, we have families, we have homes, we have a job, we have bills to pay, we have stuff to take care of that we can, uh, you know, maybe we define as not practice, or others see it as not practice. How do we merge it? How do we create division between what we may think practice is and what, we, what it's not? Oh, One at a time. Uh, I don't think it's about merging anything, it's about, I'm always saying that, you know, like it, it's stop creating thinking of impurity. You know, it's you know, what's going on in whatever you're doing mm -hmm. as a monk or as a household person, it's it's there. It's where impurity happens. And uh, and so recognizing that and you know basically the same it's another way of saying what you were saying to the previous archive, you know, in the sense of stop creating stuff that's not there. So can, how can drinking a tea in your household not be pure? You know, or how can, you know, like everything is there already. So, so it's not about merging anything, it's about just dropping the stories on, on what you're doing or supposed to be doing and recognizing that. Right, so uh, yes, you say the good point, how can drinking tea at one place be more pure than drinking tea in another place, right? How can taking a step, how can scratching your nose, how can, you know, brushing your teeth 
at a place we call a place of practice, or we, for the sake of practice over there, why can't I do it here for the sake of practice? Or who's creating the, the, the differentiation anyway? Maybe we should ask that. Well, we are, right? We create that differentiation all the time. Right? Because if you think about it, um, you know, Zazen is everything you do, right? Zazen is driving your car. Zazen is walking up the stairs. Zazen is, you know, standing in front of the refrigerator trying to figure out what to eat. It's all those things. So if we can take what we practice on the mat and bring it out into the real world and practice Zazen in our daily uh, life, you know, I think that's how we do it. It's not easy. <laughs> no, but then, right, but that's just the work, right? You're talking about mobilizing the Zazen, mobilizing Zazen, right? right. So Zazen on the go, yeah. right? I mean, it means sitting Zen, sitting meditation, but, you know, the four modes of existence, right? So, so in all the four modes of existence, right? Laying down, sitting, standing, walking, in all those four modes, keep practicing and don't favor one over the other. And I have to say that about sometimes we have to sit on a chair because we have a problem, and this happened to all of us, because we have a problem with our knees, with our hip, with our whatever, right? And then we create a, an idea about, well, this is not really good practice. It's much better to sit on the ground, and a bunch of you have done that, <laughs> right? It's much better to sit on the ground because I'm more connected, I'm more, you know, it's the earth, right? <laughs> Who's saying that? Why? Why do we create that? It's the same as thinking the monastery is better than this. Right? So, yes, you sit on a chair, but that's not as pure. People say that, don't you? <laughs> With that word, right? So, so who's saying it's not pure? Do I have to really believe? Maybe I have a thought that says it's not pure. Do I have to believe that thought? Right? See how relevant it is? <laughs> Right? It really is. It's about our practice. Yes? I think he tells people, I think he tells those 30, 30, what, how many were there? Those 30 some odd people, well, no, do leave your house. Do leave your household while the Buddha is in the world. This is the best time to do it. And they said, well, we need our parents' permission. And he said, well, then leaving household is the same as trying to attain Anathara Sanyak Sambodhi. So I think it, it speaks to um, no inside, no outside because we're creating this place inside our household or outside of our household. That's the best, that's the best. And it's done, it's all the best. As long as you are attaining and you're working towards it and you're, you're being it. Yeah, expressing. yeah. He's walking around and I mean, back in those days, those things actually, I mean, for us, it doesn't mean the same, but back in those days, those were the, the kind of divisions they created. Right? So he's walking around saying, no, don't create division, don't create division, don't create division, right? <coughs> so instead of looking at what they did back then, is how do we create division? How do we create division? With what? Essentially with the same stuff, because the practice is the same, right? Do we use uh, the practice for the sake of creating more divisions, or can we see that the practice is showing us how we create divisions and telling us to stop doing it? That's all. It's a lifetime, but that's all. I have trouble taking my practice into work, for example. Yeah. Because it's just so different. You know, I, I, I create the difference in my head, but it's in a different it's a different expression altogether, you know, the way that people live um, 
the way that people live is not what I do. You know, that's not how I practice, and they practice a different way, or they don't practice at all, and, or they have different ways of being that, um, that I really don't um, connect with, you know? So, because, because I'm trying to, I'm trying to practice and um, merge while they are while I feel like they are separating. So that that's where my trouble is. I feel like I can't take it into work because they're they're very busy separating people out and you know, competing and encouraging the kids to compete and and I'm trying to merge things. So I feel like there's a dichotomy. So I do feel like there's dualism there. So bringing my practice into work is very difficult. I think it's also important to realize that we're always practicing. It's, it's not so much um, we practice here or we practice there. We're always practicing. But what are we practicing? Because you may be aware that we're practicing something specific. But when we're not doing that, we're also practicing something else. And we can also strengthen the things that work against us mm -hmm. by not paying attention. Just to you know, find the it's kind of what I liked the most out of that one monk at our closing ceremony when he said, uh, to be honest, you guys have a harder job than I do uh, because you're trying to practice in a world that oftentimes is at, at odds with everything right. you're trying to work on with the self and with others. So to do it in that environment, which is, you know, at times very hostile yeah. to those ends is, is often... I feel like, you know, the flower going through the proverbial concrete, as it were, is, uh, requires great effort. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, <clears throat> you know, if anything, it makes the, the practice more necessary yeah because we yeah because we can very easily differentiate right between people between practitioners and non-practitioners right and you know we we come here we get together we support each other uh, we work on being there for each other right and there is a common uh, theme right you know we're all here we sit together we, we chant together right and it feels very good because we are cultivating something that's really good but then what about everybody else and, and it's actually easy to create a, a bubble here that feels good, right? But then again, what about everybody else? If we do it without an understanding that everybody's included, then we're not doing it correctly. Then we miss the point. To me, it's, it's, it's the, it goes back to that kind of just fundamental, um, it's, it's the place from which we operate or how we operate. Right? So if we operate from a perspective of everything is impermanent, everything is connected, right? then it shouldn't matter. Right? It, sh it really shouldn't matter whether we're up in the monastery or whether we're out here, so long as we're operating from that, from that perspective. Right? Because otherwise, we could play dumb, you know, we can play him, right? and go up to the monastery and say, guys, get, get out of here. What are you doing here? Like, this is, this is, Right. Right. Why are you here? Right. Right. Get out into the world. Start doing some good. Right. And you could, you could it, it's the same yeah. logic. Yeah, it does. Yes, exactly. It doesn't matter. It doesn't, it doesn't matter, matter from which side you look at the matter, other side. Right. right, right. You can stand here, look there. You can stand there, look here. Right. The only, the, the, the big difference is are we saying that and expressing that from a, a 
point of view in which we recognize that everything is impermanent and everything is connected. Yeah, there's, there's nothing wrong with being at a monastery. There's nothing wrong right. with being in the world, right. in, in a sense, because it's just a different way of expressing something, right? right. And it's essential. Right. Both are essential. Right. It's essential for this practice to have, to take the time to actually observe deeply. But and what, to be secluded this way. Right, right. But what is essential is cultivating that underlying um, realization. Yeah, right? there like, and here. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. The continuous, moment by moment, continuous practice. Right. Doesn't end, doesn't begin. It continues. Right. Appearances change. Right. Yet the practice continues. Right. Yeah. Um, yes, it continues. But, okay, so I'm, I'm in a place where gossip is a part of getting somewhere. Um, in, a, in the school building, it's who you know and who you commiserate with and who you chat up and say, this one is doing this, this one's doing this. I've made a vow not to speak of others' errors and faults, and I want to maintain it. Um, but when I'm in the school building, there, there's only a certain, there only, there's a limited place I can go, you know, there. I can't, <coughs> I can't make it unless I gossip about somebody, and I'm not going to do that. But I'm not going to, I'm not going to get in good with somebody by gossiping, because that's just not me. It's not what I want to maintain. But how do you bring that into practice and not have an internal, external, I think it's like where am I going with my job? There, there it's like I mean, as you were speaking, it just it, I, for, for those that, that practice like Aikido, right? Right? We can we can deal with all the stuff up here, but if we just deal with it up here, right, it turns into a fight and it becomes really difficult and exhausting. But if we're if we if we operate from the point of our center and we move our center, right, that that that, that point below underneath. Things move in a different way. It doesn't mean that the chaos isn't still around. We just we just encounter it in a very different way. Well, because okay. because you're reminded that at the level of center everything is included. Right. You're reminded that nothing is nothing is outside of that, and then you can and then you're not rejecting. Right. Because how can you reject the right hand? Right. I mean the left hand. You know you, you go somewhere else, but you know, it's not going to work, right? right? So all all the the, the the parts of the body have to work together, although we're not saying they are, we have to work on it, right? right? Because the foot goes this way, the other foot goes that way, right. as we know from Aikido. Right. Right? So what we're working on is unifying right. all the parts, but from an understanding, all the parts are already unified. Right. You're not trying to attach the leg to the hip. <laughs> it's, <there. laughs> it's just it doesn't know it's there. Right. It has its own ideas. Right. It wants to go right. right. Says, no, no, we're going this way now. <laughs> So it's kind of the same, right? So right. we work on you and harmonizing here, and then through that, realizing we are one with all things. So how do we recognize that? Right. Harmonize with all things. I do think that the difficulties are real and they require a lot of courage. Um, I think the courage is, is to maintain um, what you think is the best course of action, even if that course of action uh, is probably not gonna take you I mean, it's, it's not going to make you gay. And that's, that's how I, at the end of the day, that's how I try to kind of um, 
I clog that because that happens to me for a chunk too. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it's trying to see where I'm gaining or whatever I'm trying to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, and letting go of the gain. I mean, sometimes it's the gain of being perceived as, I mean, like you're not participating in the gossip, you know for a fact that people will talk about you, things that are probably not true. So how do you, how do you deal with that? How do you, I mean, what is that you're trying to gain by fighting the gossip? You're trying to gain people to see you as, you know, a great person. And why do we need that? I mean, who needs that? Who needs to be seen as a great person? And so, so the gaining is where you know we get attached to the defense on that, or attached to the dichotomy of uh, my actions seem like kind of I don't know what to do because if I will do what I think I should be doing, it's it's I'm losing. I you know, and, uh, we have to. Uh, we have to move on, uh, right. so very quickly. Yeah, it's not. It's not that I want to see people. Uh, I want people to see me as a good person. But no, I, I was talking about me. I'm sorry. No, I know. Okay. I know. No, I'm not being defensive either. Yeah. I'm, just, I'm, I'm telling you, um, I, I'm trying to harmonize something that's unharmonized. <laughs> yeah, but, but I'm with you again, and that takes back to the character, right? Like, if he was success, as successful as he was, right? He was doing all kinds of deals, probably some that were not all that scrupulous, right? I mean, like, you know, Maybe. he probably did all sorts of shit, right? I mean, like, you know, <laughs> I mean, really, I mean, what, what, makes, what makes us think that, that he acquired all of this wealth because every deal that he did was not somehow manipulating or, the, I mean, because come on. And why doesn't it also include that? So long as he's also operating from that from that other perspective. Why do we think the guy's a good guy? No, it's not that. It's, it's, it's why do we create good and bad in relation to anything and anybody? But you know, the, the it doesn't really matter. What matters is that we look at the dichotomies we create. We're not here to analyze or judge or, you know, a story or, or a figure. But what it is, is to look at ourselves. Where am I creating dichotomies? Yeah, no, what I'm saying is that he was operating in a reality of his own, right? Just like Miogen goes to school and is, is operating in a reality there where gossip of this can, can have real impact, right? These things are as real as anything else, right? And just... We have to We do have to move on, so a quick one and we move on. I'm just saying he used this illness to yeah. gather everybody uh, around. He didn't say, oh, let me... Uh, he's wealthy, he can throw a big ball and have all the important people come in so he can preach to them. But he's used this illness to manipulate everybody and bring them into his home. Because he knows that when somebody's ill, you want to go play, pay respects and go see and make sure that they're okay. We all that, do that in our families too. When somebody's ill, everybody, okay, let's go make something, let's bring it over, let's go see them. But if they're okay and well, oh, they're okay and well, I'm busy doing this, I'm gonna excuse myself from this meeting or from this gathering or whatever because yeah, everybody's okay. When somebody's ill, you wanna go there, right? So he, that's what, exactly what he did. He manipulated everybody to come into his house to see him because he used his illness as a manipulation to bring everybody together. But from that, 
something good develops. Well, anyway, we brought right. us all together here today. So. <laughs> here we are, yes. talking about his illness. Exactly. Wait, raise it. We're going to raise it. To, to, to watch for creating absolutes because absolutes create a bubble and it creates an opposition, mm-hmm. right? So, and that's, right, to, to reconcile all dichotomies. Right, let's just move on and I'm gonna, we have 10 minutes, nine minutes and we have to let everybody go. So I wanna at least go through Maitreya. So uh, then Maitreya, okay, Maitreya, uh, he asked Maitreya to go visit Vimalakirti. Uh, Maitreya said, no, I cannot go. Chapter 4. Yes. Why? Because I recall how once in the past I was preaching to the king of Tushita heaven and his followers <coughs> on the practice, practices required to attain the state of non-regression. Uh, Tushita heaven is the, like, the greatest heaven you can be at, right? And uh, just uh, to shed light on that, Maitreya, actually my, it means loving-kindness, Maitri, loving-kindness, this is the, the name, and Maitreya is considered the Buddha of the future who will, and actually until he comes, he resides in Tushita heaven, uh, in case you wonder, <laughs> where is he now, right? So, uh, you know, Buddhist mythology, right? So there is the Buddha of the future, Maitreya, who will come when there's no longer any practitioners around. He will come and revive Buddhism, okay? So until then, he's hanging out in, my, in the Tushita heaven. And people like already happened to walk by Tushita heaven, right? So <laughs> <laughs> he's wondering, right? Wow. <laughs> yes. He's everywhere. He's quite a guy, right? He's everywhere. <laughs> 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 
so anyway, so, so he said, once I was there, so at that time, Vimalakirti, while he was talking to the, you know, to the king, uh, and he's preaching, uh, Vimalakirti approached and said to Maitreya, the world honored ones prophesied that, you know, that with one more birth, you will be able to attain Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi. Now, just what birth does this prophecy apply to? Does it apply to your past birth, your future birth, or your present birth? If it applies to your past birth, then past birth has already passed into extinction, right? If it applies to future birth, then future birth has not yet arrived. If it applies to your present birth, this present birth lacks permanence. For as the Buddha said, monks, one moment you're born and the next you grow old, next you pass on into extinction. Or does the prophecy apply to the state of birthlessness? But birthlessness is none other than the state of correct realization. And the state of correct realization can have nothing to do with prophecies or enlightenment or with attaining or the attainment of Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi. So how, Maitreya, can you be given this prophecy about one birth? Now, I mean, you could see how even with that, right? You know, even with some, a figure like that, Right? A figure like that that is revered as somebody who will come back and revive Buddhism. Right? Even with that, we have to mess with it. We have to mess with everything, really. That's the point. Right? In everything, we, everything we get fixated on or, or we get attached to or we make something concrete of, do away with it. And that, that's the more imp most important point, probably, you know, instead of getting into why and this and that. that doesn't None of it matters. None of it matters. Actually, I think that if we get too interested in those details, then we have to watch, because that comes from the same creation of a self. I think, I think, no. No. I would just say no. Stop right there and look at where this question or this pondering or wondering or whatever comes and then, in a way, we have to kind of have Vimalakirti in the background, <laughs> watching over us and saying, ah, watch. You're getting caught up again. So we're going to have to wrap it up with that. I had the uh, aspiration to go further. <laughs> but I think, I think Maitreya is uh, good enough for now. Right? And uh, we're going to keep reading. And, and the one thing, what I'm always debating about this is, you know, how much to open it up. And on one level, I want to open it because it's an opportunity for us to actually converse, communicate, discuss. On another, there's a lot to go through, <laughs> right? But you know, it really doesn't matter if we have another one or two uh, book study meetings. I don't mind. We don't mind. <laughs> right? It doesn't matter. We just sit around, have tea, and talk. So I still I do want to get through the book. Uh, there's, still, there's still that. Uh, yes, at some point, maybe by the end of the year. But anyway, we'll see how it goes. But uh, keep reading and uh, keep messing with everything. Yeah. Thank you.